Lord, that's our desire this morning, to wait upon you, to hear only from you. And Lord, we pray as we go to your word, that Lord, you'd minister to our hearts. You'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, begin even now to prepare us to come to your table for a time of communion with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. May we never take for granted, never take lightly what you've done for us. We ask you just bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. If you have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 2, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. I want to encourage you to pray about coming out on Wednesday nights. We're in 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17 on uh, Wednesday. We'll look at all 50-some-odd verses of that. It's David and Goliath, so if you don't normally come on Wednesdays, I encourage you to come. Uh, by way of quick review, Titus is, a, is the third of the pastoral epistles written by the Apostle Paul to a, a young pastor by the name of Titus who is pastoring in the city of Crete. The first chapter, he focuses on how he is to protect sound doctrine because he was living in a city filled with, as they were described, evil beasts, liars, wicked people, and he was telling them how to protect sound doctrine. And two things he told them to do was to preach the truth with great boldness and to raise up godly men to oversee the churches. Now when we get to chapters 2 and 3, we move from protecting of sound doctrine, doctrine just a big word for truth, biblical truth, from protecting biblical truth to practicing biblical truth. And if you were here last week, it was a, I just love how God's word just comes right on time. It was a perfect word for Mother's Day. And we looked at behavior becoming of belief, the practice of sound doctrine. If you were not here, let me encourage you to grab the CDs. They're always free. Help yourself. And it really talked about how every one of us in this body is called by God and we have a function that God wants to have us perform while we're here. He talked about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and people who work. So if that doesn't cover you, you're not breathing, right? And so let me encourage you, grab that CD. Now, with that being said, when we come this morning, the text is again right on time, because I've had a burden for some time to really take some time on one of these Sundays when we are going to observe communion, and to really have some time to do it in an unhurried way, to not make it an afterthought. And so with that being said, it's very appropriate, the first portion of the text we're going to look at this morning really addresses the very things we ought to be focused on as we take communion. But uh, I do have an outline that will cover both this week and next week. But before we look at that, I just want to, I titled the message, if you're a note taker, The All-Encompassing Grace of God. The All-Encompassing Grace of God. And we're not going to go through all of the, the points this morning. We'll have to look at some of it next week. But as we continue to looking at practicing of sound doctrine, behavior that reflects our belief, the sound biblical teaching, again, should produce both supernatural understanding and life set apart unto the Lord. The Bible tells us that by our fruit they will know us. And the scary part to me is that a lot of people today, even within the church, have a wrong understanding of God's grace. And what I mean by that, they have a limited understanding of God's grace. They believe in many cases that God's grace is for one thing and one thing alone, and that's our salvation. But you know what? Praise God, without God's grace, there would be no salvation. But it's also absolutely true that apart from God's incredible grace, that we wouldn't be saved, but it's also true that we would be able to do nothing good apart from God's grace. God has a desire that we be more than saved, that that we call Him more than Savior, but that we make Him Lord. And God's desire is that the grace of God would not only impact, be an impact upon us on that one time when we came forward or when we prayed the prayer, when we turned our life over to Jesus Christ, but the grace of God is something that should be evident in every aspect of our life, every single day of our lives. Because without His grace upon us, our lives are meaningless. Too many today, again, see Him as only Savior, and He must be Lord. It says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. It says in Romans 10.13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
In Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Revel, uh, Luke 6 says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Guys, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And I want to exhort all of us this morning that as we look at the text, that we need to go beyond seeing grace as being the thing that saves us, because it's by grace we're saved, amen? It's by faith through grace. That's how we're saved. Without grace, we couldn't be saved. But guys, we need to be dependent upon his grace all day, every day, in every aspect of life. And that's what we're going to talk about. This morning, because His grace, as we'll see in the text, not only redeems us, but sets us apart to live holy lives. It makes us zealous for good works. It keeps us looking up in anticipation of His soon return. So it justifies us from our sin. It sanctifies us in daily life. And it will one day glorify us. Again, His grace redeems us, restores us, and will one day reward us. So again, if you're a note taker, the all-encompassing grace of God. The first point is the only one we're going to look at this morning. The power of God's grace. We're going to make five points of the power of God's grace. Then next week, we'll look at the practicing of God's grace in the life of the believer. The outward behavior that reflects inward belief. And we'll talk about this as we go through the text. Guys, it's so important that our belief not just be, you know, I'm I'm so tired. Can I just share my heart with you? I'm tired of hearing Christians say, well, my faith is a personal issue and I kind of keep it to myself. Guys, that's weak. Amen? Amen. He didn't say, go therefore into all the world and keep your mouth shut. That's not what it says. He said, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Amen? And guys, we have the hope that the entire world is looking for and we are not to hide our light under, under a bushel. We're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim it with great boldness. So you see the five points up there. Number one, the power of God's grace saves us from our sin. We all know that. We need to know that if you don't know that. Number two, it teaches us to live sanctified lives. The power of God's grace teaches us to live sanctified lives. Number three, the power of God's grace keeps us looking up in anticipation of His glorious return. Number four, the power of God's grace makes us zealous for good, good works. And finally, the power of God's grace enables us to speak with great boldness. And if you write really fast, you can get the outline for next week too, because it's up there. All right? Now, let's begin in verse 11, looking at the all-encompassing grace of God. He's just gotten done explaining to them how the church is to function, get things in order. That's Paul's recommendation. That's his exhortation to Titus. Church is a mess. Get it in order. Put pastors in place. Teach the word. Have the older women ministering to the younger women. Have the older men giving instruction to the younger men. Be godly examples in the workplace. And now he moves into yet more very practical stuff that we all need to hear. So the power of God's grace, the first thing we will see is it saves us from our sin. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation. You may have heard it before. That's okay. We need to hear it again. The word grace simply means unmerited favor. Being given something we don't deserve. Notice it doesn't say the works of man bring salvation or the keeping of religious rules or rituals bring salvation or going to church every Sunday or, you know, being baptized. And again, I'm not saying those things are wrong. We should be in fellowship. We should be baptized. Those things do not save us. Salvation comes through Christ alone and through his shed blood upon the cross of Calvary. And it's only by His grace, you guys have heard me say it before, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. He paid the price that you and I might have eternal life. And it's for the grace of God that brings salvation. The word grace there means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. 
You know what? He's given us favor, not because we deserve it. He's given it to us because he wants to, and he's a gracious God. Guys, we should never take for granted. So who exactly is this grace given to? Who exactly is this grace exposed to? Who exactly has access to the grace of God? Let's read on. Look what it says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to the elect. Is that what it says? What does it say? All men. The word all there in the original language means all. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. His atonement on the cross was not limited to some. It was made available to all. It is His desire that none should perish. No, not one. For God so loves the world, the love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There are those out there who would teach He only died for a few. He predestined you to heaven and you have no choice, or He predestined you to hell and you have no choice. But here's the truth. Salvation is offered universally, but it must be accepted individually. And his desire is that everyone would respond. Now, does he know who's going to respond? Of course he does, because he's God and he knows everything. But because he knows doesn't mean he makes us choose. Either way. It's a free gift offered to all men. Now, it has appeared to all men. This tells us there's one gospel for all men. There are not 19 different gospels depending on your culture or your background or your circumstances or the time in which you lived, the gospel has been one truth coming through one God, one Savior for all men for all time. And so, regardless of the culture, regardless of where we live, it's not grace for some and law for others. It's not Jesus for some and Buddha or Muhammad for others. Sometimes people say, well, maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe the people in the Far Far East, maybe it's Buddha for them. Uh, No, it's not. And people say, well, pastor, how do you know? Because God said. And God's always right. Amen? Amen? Now, with that being said, that means we need to reach out to the Buddhist. And we need to reach out to the Muslim. And we need to let them know that there is a truth. And his name is Jesus. Amen? And He's the way. And He's the answer. God's grace is available to all mankind. All men are saved. All women are saved the same way. We've all been offered the same gift. And the free gift of salvation is offered universally, as I said. But it must be accepted individually. Now the word there appeared. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The word appeared there is epiphany. And so the grace of God has been an epiphany. It has appeared to all men. And that word, if you look it up, means shines out. And I love this because I think of it this way. The sun shines on all men. And so too, the grace of God is available to all men. Just as the S-U-N shines on all men, the grace of God, the grace of God the Father, has been made available to all men through the S-O-N. Amen? And so his desire is he reaches out to every one of us. Now, here's the good news. Everyone can be saved and everyone needs to be saved. Now, what does that mean? Everyone can be saved. That means it doesn't matter how bad your life has been, how wicked you think your past is, how grievous a a sin you've committed, you're not beyond redemption. Aren't you glad? The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So you can't be such a sinner that you cannot be saved. But on the other hand, there's no one on this planet so good that they don't need to be saved. Amen? Amen. Not so bad you can't be saved and not so good you don't need to be saved. If God allowed one sinner to heaven and of earth part two. And you know the truth is, I'll never forget having dinner with my Distant relatives up in Seattle, my grandmother called me and said, you got to go see. I met 30 people I didn't know. I was related to all of them. We didn't have any children yet. And we sat down at the table and they had, you know, a lot of 
of religious things on the walls. But, you know, we started talking and they had just gone to a funeral that day of their next door neighbor. And they were talking about how, you know, well, he's in heaven now. And I, I just made this statement. This is long before I was a pastor. I was probably 21, 22 years old. And, he, and they said, yeah, he's in heaven. I said, oh, well, praise God, he's a believer. And they said, a believer? What is that? And I was like, uh, a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, well, he was a good man. I said, well, a good man. I never met one of those. You know, the, Bi- <laughs> the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Amen? Amen? And I just asked the question, how many times a day does a good man sin? I'm just curious. You know, if he's the best man I ever met, I don't know how many. And I said, you know, a hundred, well, let's just make it a small number. Three times a day, that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You think he sins three times a day? Well, yeah, probably more than that. I said, so three times a day, that's a thousand times a year. How old was he? Well, he was 82. Well, that's 82,000 sins if he's the best guy I ever met. And we could probably add a few zeros to that. I know we could in my life. How about yours? Amen. And you know what? If you stood before a judge with 82,000 crimes, what would they do to you? God can't have one sin in heaven. He's got earth part two. He can't have 82,000 or 820,000 or probably closer to 82 million, right, sins being brought into heaven. And you know what's interesting? It was kind of an uproar. My poor wife went, oh no, you know. (laughs) Came over to have dinner, meet some new people. No, I can't believe it. But here's the thing. I'll never forget at one point I looked at my great uncle and I said, you have Jesus hanging on the cross all over your house. If we could be good enough to get into heaven, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And he sat back from his chair and he went, that's a good question. I've never even thought about that. I went over to open the Bible to read something to him. He said, we don't open that. And I said, therein lies the problem. You know, here's the point. None of us is so good that we don't need salvation. And none of us is so bad that we can't be saved. People get upset when they hear that maybe a mass murderer in prison gives his life to Jesus. I don't get upset. I rejoice. I praise God that our God is that kind of a God. A God of love and grace and mercy. I'm I'm glad he doesn't grade on the curve that he grades at the cross. So for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's available to all, but it must be received. John 1.12 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed in his name. So who received him? Those who believed in his name. It's not a belief about God. It's not believing that there is a God. It's coming broken and contrite before Him, repenting of your sin and saying, Jesus, I desperately need you. I'm lost without you. Come and rule and reign in my life. That's repentance. That's what it means to become a Christian. Not just to mumble a prayer quietly or raise your hand quickly and put it down before anybody sees it. We need to live it out loud for Jesus. Amen? So, the power of God's grace, it saves us from our sin, and we should never take that for granted. We need to be remembering that as we prepare for a time of communion. Secondly, it teaches us to live sanctified lives. Look at verse 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now notice, teaching us that, the word teaching is linked back to the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us. Maybe you've never thought about that before. But the grace of God teaches us. The grace of God instructs us. The grace of God gives direction to our lives. The word teaching there in the original language has in mind what a parent does for a child. It speaks of the entire training process. You know, when you teach a child, teaching a child includes encouragement, correction, teaching, and discipline. And that's what it's saying here is that the grace of God teaches us, encourages us, corrects us, gives direction to us, even discipline to us. The grace of God teaches Christians how to live. You know, it's because of God's grace that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of every one of us who's been born again. 
And the Holy Spirit has two functions, two main functions in your life, to comfort you and to convict you. And praise God for conviction, amen? If I don't get convicted, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not listening. How about you, amen? Because He's convicting us because He loves us to bring us back into right fellowship with Him. And notice here that He says the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Guys, one of the biggest lies today, and one of the things I think grieves the heart of God beyond what we will ever understand, is that we can be saved and then just live like the world and it's no big deal. Now, we're not saved by good works, but when we're saved, our lives should produce good works. We'll talk about that more. Amen? It's not a workspace salvation. We're not being legalistic here. You've got to do this, and then God will love you. He loves you anyway. But here's the point. It's hypocrisy. It is hypocrisy to stand for God on Sunday and Wednesday and then go live like the world the rest of the week and act like it's no big deal. You know what? Sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal to God. He hung on the cross to pay for every single one of them. We must not take sin lightly. We are to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly lust. We're not to placate it. We're not to make room for it. You know, the Bible tells us if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. He's not talking about maiming your body. What he's saying is walking in holiness before God should be such a priority that anything that would keep you from it or cause you to stumble, get rid of it no matter what it costs. There are people in this room that need to throw their computers away. Amen? There are things that will cause you to stumble, whatever it might be. Many of, plenty of other things that may be causing you to stumble. And whatever they are, it's not worth it. Your relationship with God is more important than computer access. Your relationship with God and standing for, before Him in a holy way is more important than anything this world has to offer. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't pleasurable for a season. Amen? I mean, if, if sin was drinking castor oil, we'd never do it, right? But sin is always appealing. It's always enticing. But you know what? It brings about death. And in what he says in this verse, teaching us the grace of God, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, those are the things we should walk away from. So instead, what should we be doing? Now, I can think of few things sadder than someone who believes they've been forgiven, but is living a life that has never changed. I think of people like Samson. You know, a saved soul and a wasted life. You know, someone who proclaims to know God, but their life shows absolutely no evidence of it. Guys, why am I belaboring this point? Let me tell you why. Because it's time for us to reflect Jesus Christ even when we don't open our mouths. Now, the way we live, we should be shining brightly where people want to know what in the world is different about you. I heard a great illustration by Damien Kyle one time. We talked about how if he took the lyrics, if I walked over here to Omar's music stand and took the lyrics and tried to understand what they were, I could look at them for the, uh, the notes themselves, look at the notes, not the lyrics, but look at the notes and the music, I would have no idea what any of it meant. But you know what, if Omar came up here or the worship team came up here and began to play the music for me, and I could look at the notes, and I could see it in action, it would drive it right into my heart to understand what those notes were. And you know what? Sometimes that's what needs to happen with the Word of God. People look at it, they read it, they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't understand it, and they need to see it alive and in action in their neighbors, in their co-workers, and in people in their family that know God. We ought to be playing the symphony of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. People ought to look at us and say, what in the world? I, you know, I've never heard, I've never seen this. I'm amazed at the way you react in, in the circumstances of life. We need to know that we're forgiven, but we should not continue in the same bondage. Second Corinthians says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, not only honoring to God, but draws people to Jesus when they see that our lives have been changed. Again, it's one thing to hear that the Bible says it, and it's another thing for them to see it in action. You know what? I would pray that we live so sold out for Him, we wouldn't even have to tell them that the Bible says that they would know it by seeing it in our lives. 
So what do we do instead? Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, what does grace teach us about living sanctified lives? We should live soberly. The word soberly means self-controlled. Exercising restraint on our passions. Guys, it's interesting. Remember last week, there were seven instructions for the younger women. Do you remember that? Seven things. And we get to the younger men, one thing. And we all thought, man, that's just not fair. And I said, well, no, that's because that's all they can handle, right? <laughs> but the one thing was, the translation was, to be in self-control. To control yourself. That's enough for you. That's a big assignment. I'm just going to tell you that. Just control yourself. That's it. I give you any more, you can't handle it. Young man, control yourself. And you know what? He's saying that the, the grace of God should cause us to live lives walking in sobriety, self-controlled, exercising restraint on our passions. Guys, we don't have to sin. We choose to. Amen? And that means when the temptation comes, we don't have to do it. So every time we do, we're running over all the stop signs and all the conviction of the Holy Spirit and everything He tries to do. I'll never forget calling a guy one time. And, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm not on the receiving end of this sometimes too. But I'm, I'm sitting there one time studying late at night and I called this guy on the phone. I hadn't talked to him in six months. He lives in another state. He picked up the phone and he, he goes, and he just went, dude. I go, what? He goes, I was just about to do something that I was going to regret, and then the phone rang, and I picked it up, and you called me out of note. You know, the Holy Spirit will do that. Makes that way of escape, right? Makes that way of escape. You're getting, you, know, you go out and get in your car to go get drunk, and the car won't start. You know what I mean? God's like, you know what? Stay home, right? You go catch a bus if you want, and just keep on going. But God loves us enough to bring the way of escape. We need to live soberly, in self-control. Bringing our passions under control of the Holy Spirit. One may say that in a world where we are tempted to say yes to every desire and feeling, that the reality of our faith can be demonstrated by what we say, demonstrated by what we say no to. By what we're willing to deny ourselves of. There's a sign of some spiritual maturity. I'm just going to say no. And we need more of that in the church today. Amen? Well, we just say, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't care if everyone else in the world does that. As I said in, at chapel with the, the youth two weeks ago at Monta Vista, any dead fish can go with the flow, right? I mean, anybody can just do what the world's doing. But God has called us to live different. So it says they're teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. So that's concerning ourselves. Be self-controlled. Then it says righteously. So soberly is concerning ourselves. Righteously is before men. Live lives righteously before men. When men see us, they see the example of Christ being lived out in our lives. That we have a testimony before men. So we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Now, soberly, us, our self-control. Righteously before men and godly before God. There's, those are the three witnesses, the three sets of witnesses to our behavior. Our own, we know ourselves how we're living. The, the testimony we have to the world around us. And then lastly, before God. Guys, may we take seriously our walk with God. May it be the priority in our lives. Not tenth on the list or fifth or second. It's moving up the list. It's only behind three things now. It should be the first priority of life. Amen. Now that's not, guys, you're not going to be bummed out that you're making God first. You're just not. It's always going to be, man, why didn't I do this a long time ago? Why in the world did I have God down on the list? That was pretty lame. Because everything else I gave my life to is fading away. Everything else is perishing. Your relationship with God endures. And look what it says, though. This is important. So live soberly. Self-controlled, righteously, have a godly uh, testimony before men, and godly, make a, a serious walk with God. And it says, in the present age. If you remember, this present age was amidst a culture of liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons in, the, in Crete. So he's saying, in the midst of all these lazy, lying, gluttonous, evil people, you live sober, righteous, and godly in the midst of all of it. And so the point here is this, that we live in a place maybe not unlike Crete, but God's desire is that you and I live godly in the midst 
of whatever wickedness may be around us. Amen? It's not an excuse. Well, I live in a really tough place. That's why. When confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. We can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. And even in the midst of an ungodly age, we need to be, uh, not be anxious amidst the world's turmoil. We not to be, need not be worried about what's going on around us. We need to instead get our eyes on the Lord. So, the power of God's grace. Number one, it saves us from our sin. Number two, it teaches us to live a sanctified life. Number three, It keeps us looking up in anticipation of His glorious return. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, look what it says. The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus. Jesus Christ. God's grace covers our past. He's redeemed us. Covers our present. He's sanctifying us. And it covers our future. And that one day He will glorify us. And we will be in His presence forevermore. He's forgiven our past sin. He's empowered us to live today for Him. And gives us a hope for the future. Looking for the blessed hope. Christians should live every day in expectancy of His soon return. Could He come back today? What's the answer? Yes, He could. We should live every day. Now, no no man knows the day or the hour. None of us know. But you know what? We'll never regret living every day like He's coming back tomorrow. Like He's coming back tonight. Let's live in expectancy. Now, the word hope, that confuses people. Because we, we kind of change the meaning. It doesn't mean hope so. I hope. I hope my future is going to be okay. I've talked to many people. You ask them, are you going to heaven? They say, I hope so. I don't want to be there. How about you? You know, good news. Here, guys, Christianity is not a hope so. It's a no so. I know for sure that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I'm going to heaven. Not because of my good works, but because of His great grace. The grace of God. So it's the word hope means confident expectation and anticipation. So looking forward with a blessed expectation and anticipation of His soon return. Again, the grace of God should impact not only our past, not only our present, but what we're looking to in the future. We're looking for heaven. And guys, I want to say this. Let me even correct myself. We're not really looking for heaven. You know what we're looking for? The one who's in heaven. Amen? Because you know what's interesting there? Looking for the blessed hope. Well, what is the, or what or who is the blessed hope? The blessed hope, it isn't heaven. It's not eternal life. The blessed hope is Jesus Christ. Because look at the rest of that verse. It says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Guys, you know what? Heaven is going to be way better than we think. Way more miraculous than we could ever imagine. Way more beautiful than when anybody could ever put into words. Paul said, having had a glimpse of it, I can't even explain it to you. There's no way to do it. You go to Revelation, it talks about some of the things that will be in heaven. These precious stones that are in foundations of walls and gates made out of single pearls and streets of gold and a crystal sea and all those beautiful, wonderful things. But guys, none of that will compare to seeing Jesus face to face. None of it. You know what I thought of? I thought of a wedding. You know, sometimes when you have a wedding, and, and you should, but you spend all the time on the flowers and the, and, you know, the decorations. And, but you, when you ask somebody about a wedding, almost always the first thing they mention is the bride. Because the bride is the one where all the attention is focused and that's what grabs people's heart and what they remember. You know, as beautiful as the surroundings are, the greatest thing that happens at a wedding is a man and a woman becoming one, in, becoming one flesh. Amen? That's the miracle. And guys, when we get to heaven, we're the bride of Christ. And the greatest thing that's going to happen is we're going to be wed to our groom forever and ever and ever. And the surroundings will be beautiful and they'll be incredible. But the most important thing is we're going to see Jesus and that blows me away. You're going to hug Jesus one day. You ever thought about that? Wow. 
Wow. Amen? That's good stuff. Now, heaven's going to be incredible. But what's more incredible is who's there. So our hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is, no, again, I, it says our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what? This is all linked together. In the original language, it's one statement. So here's what I want you to see. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does this tell us? Jesus Christ is God. Here's yet another verse to underline in your Bible. When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, the Word of God never said that He was God, at the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. You know what? There's never a notation of the Father appearing. So this, rep, this pointing to God has to be the Son, even if you don't understand English and can't put these words together, right? But another clear reference, He is God, okay? Praise the Lord. The glory, you know, and it is going to be a glorious appearing, amen? It's going to be glorious. Now, I will say this, it's glorious for those who know Him. It will be heavy for those who don't, amen? I can't wait for Him to come. I often think of, you know, remember when you were younger and you were in trouble. Maybe your mom, I don't know if your mom ever said this, but your mom would say, you know, wait till your dad gets home. You're in big trouble. You know, almost nothing worse than hearing the car pull into the driveway. Oh, you know, right? But you know what? If you're doing great with dad, you love to see his car pull in the driveway. Dad's home. You run out and give him a hug, right? Good to see you, dad. You know the belt's not coming, right? Amen? But you know what? For us, I can't wait for our Savior's return. But maybe you're here today, you don't know the Lord. If you don't know Him, it won't be glorious. And you can know Him before you leave this place this morning. So, the all-encompassing grace of God, the power of God's grace, saves us from our sin. It teaches us to live sanctified lives. It keeps us looking up in anticipation of His glorious return. And at the end of this next verse, it makes us zealous for good works. But before we see that, let's take a look at this. Because here's what it says. And I want you to meditate on this verse as we prepare for communion here. It says, The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. Every word of Jesus' work is important. Jesus gave Himself for us. This was a voluntary act. Nobody made him do it. Nobody put him on the cross. He freely laid down his life and went there. He could have come down off the cross anytime he wanted, right? He's God. He could have turned everybody into toads or whatever he wanted to. But you know what? It was not nails that held him to the cross. It was his love for us. He gave himself for us. How can we not give our lives for Him? How can we be bemoaning our circumstances in life? Man, it's just kind of rough being a Christian, man. I go through so many things. Go home and pop on the passion and then come and talk to me about it, right? Remember what Christ did for you. And in, in comparison, there's so little that we give for Him. How much did He give? It says He gave. What did He give? He gave Himself. He gave us whole self. Jesus gave all that He could. Consider again as we prepare to take communion. He gave it all. He died on the cross that you and I might have eternal life. He held nothing back to redeem you because He loves you. Jesus voluntarily gave all He could. Why? For what? For whom? Who gave Himself for us. Now remember, He gave Himself for us, and we were not yet the beautiful bride we've become. Do you understand that? When He gave Himself for us, we were wicked and wayward and separated and in rebellion against Him and mocking His name. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't become the beautiful bride until the blood was shed upon the cross. So when He died for us, imagine dying for the person who, in this world who hates you the most, who mocks you the most, 
The person you would, if you could write down five names of people you never want to see again, top of the list. And imagine laying down your life and dying for them. That's what Jesus did for us. He died for us. For sinful, rebellious men, most of whom will never even acknowledge the price he paid. This is the greatest act of love ever. Perfect, holy God, voluntarily laying down his life for sinful, rebellious men, most of whom would only reject his gift. Why did he do it? So why did he lay down his life for us? That he might redeem us from every, every lawless deed. The word redeem there means to be bought out of slavery by paying a ransom. Guys, our debt was great. The, the price was way too high. Nobody else could have paid it. Nobody else would have paid it. Only Jesus could. Only Jesus would. Only Jesus did. Guys, the only way that sinful man can be restored back to holy God is that there is a holy sacrifice. And the only one who's ever lived who could die for you and take your sin upon himself is Jesus. That's why that if even another man comes along and proclaims to be a Messiah and dies in your place, it will mean nothing because he himself is a sinner in need of a Savior. Only Jesus could pay the price because only Jesus is God. Because only He is perfect. Because only He is the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. Because only He is the Creator. Because only He is the Messiah. Only Him. And that's who's... Death on the cross, we're going to observe here in a few minutes, and may we not take it lightly. He gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us, that He might pay the price, that He might restore sinful man back to holy God by taking our punishment upon Himself. Guys, I'm, I know I'm speaking you know, very, direct, well, very directly this morning, but here's the point. It is a slap in the face of our Savior to in any way intimate that there's any other way to heaven but by Him. It really is. It's mockery of the cross of Calvary, isn't it? Well, maybe there is another way. That's mocking our Savior. There is no maybe. He is the way, and I'm glad that it is so clear. Jesus alone could. Jesus alone did. He paid the price. And again, if there was another way, why would He have to even go to the cross? So it says, for, from every lawless deed. And again, I said this before. Praise God that He died for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Aren't you glad? Now, that doesn't mean that shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. Certainly not. We should not do that. But He has forgiven us, paid the price for every, every lawless deed. You know what? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the condemnation comes from the enemy, not from the Lord. Amen? Amen. And so, you've heard it said before, the next time he reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. You know what? We've been redeemed. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. We should no longer walk in condemnation. We, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. He not only justified us unto salvation, but he sanctified us unto holy use. Look what it says. He redeemed us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're His own special people? Have you ever thought about the fact that you are His treasured possession? The God who created everything in the universe treasures one thing above all, and what He treasures is you. And He treasures you knowing every lawless deed you've ever committed. He who knows you best loves you most. Incredible, isn't it? You know, nobody knows us one millionth of the way God knows us. Amen? And He still loves us anyway. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible grace. He purifies us for Himself as His own special people, that we might be able to be His bride, be able to have fellowship with Him forevermore. The word there for special or purify, is to reserve. He's specifically used, it's specifically used for the part of the spoils when a king wins a battle, that he holds apart a specific part of the spoils, especially for himself to keep. And that's who we are. We're that part that he desires to keep for himself. 
May we never let that thought grow common that Jesus suffered, endured the most heinous punishment so you and I could be his bride, his treasured possession, his people's his people, his friends for all eternity. It's almost beyond comprehension. And all the and all in light of all that he's done for us, even though we don't deserve it, how should we respond? Look at the end of the verse. His own special people, how do we respond? Zealous for good works. By being zealous for good works. The word zealous means one burning with zeal, most eagerly desirous. We are a special people. His spirit dwells within us. He didn't, guys, he didn't save us so we could sit back in the recliner and wait for the rapture. Amen? He saved us to use us for his glory. That we could be busy about His work. His Spirit in and through us producing good works. Good works not for salvation, but evidence of salvation. And as we walk in the Spirit, we should be walking testimonies to the grace of God. You know what? We could use a little more zeal in the church today. Amen? Amen. I mean, do you, see, do you see like just halfway apostles after, after Pentecost? Peter's like, well, yeah, you know, take it or leave it. You know, God, it's kind of a cool thing. Check it out. No, he doesn't do that. You must be born in, right? You need to be saved. How about the Apostle Paul? You know, they throw rocks at him until he's dead. He gets back up and goes back into the city. That's zeal. Amen? That's passion. We need a little more of that in the church today to be zealous for good works, to live a life set apart unto the Lord that reflects Him to a lost and dying world. To not be worried about what the world thinks of us, but to be faithful to what God has commanded us. The all-encompassing grace of God, the power of God's grace, saves us from sin, teaches us to live sanctified lives, keeps us looking up in anticipation of His glorious return, makes us zealous for good works. Again, serving Him should be a get-to and not a have-to, you guys. And then lastly, us, enables us to speak with great boldness. Look what it says, verse 15. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Speak these things. What things? You go back to verse 1 of chapter 2. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He says, speak the word of God. Speak the truth of the gospel and speak it with great boldness. Speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. The word speak there means to preach or to proclaim or to herald with great boldness. So in this chapter, he's talked about, or in this letter, grace and salvation and redemption, but also the practical things that should be evident in the church. The word exhort there means to invite, invoke, or implore, to be bold and forceful in exhorting them to holiness. It's okay to be bold. It's all right. It's okay. Do it in love, but be bold. And then it says, exhort, and then it says rebuke with all authority. Remember earlier he was talking about the false teachers in chapter 1. He said, remove them, shut them up, get them out of here. And so when it comes to the false teachers, it's to exhort the believer to more steadfast walk and to a greater passion for God and to rebuke the false teacher who would bring division within the body of Christ. With all authority. Again, you know what we have as an authority that we can speak with authority? The Word of God. Guys, we can speak the Word of God with authority because the Word of God is true. And the Holy Spirit who penned it through the hands of men, dwells inside of us. And we can speak the word of God with great authority. People may come against it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's the truth. Last point, let no one despise you. The word there actually is let no one intimidate you. Don't let someone intimidate you from fulfilling your calling. Titus was to be an example to others on how to live. An obedient and faithful walk would bring greater authority to his words. Hypocrisy would cause people to despise him and his words. You know what? People will despise us if we say one thing and we live another way. I did prison ministry for a little over four years in Lancaster, Palmdale. And there were guys there who told me, the guys will respect you for being a Christian as long as you practice what you preach. But as soon as you say one thing and live another way, you're going to get a beat down. And you know what? We need a few beat downs today. But here's the point. May we live what we believe. May our belief impact our behavior. 
May the grace of God impact every aspect of life. So, as we prepare for communion, the all-encompassing grace of God, the power of God's grace, saves us from our sin, teaches us to live sanctified lives, keeps us looking up in anticipation of His glorious return, makes us zealous for good works, and enables us to speak with great boldness. Next week, we'll look more in depth at the practicing of grace, of God's grace in the life of the believer, the outward behavior that reflects the inward belief. But now, we're going to go to this time of communion. Let me say this. Here at Calvary Chapel, we don't have church membership. So, the Lord's Supper is for every believer. Not someone who believes there is a God, but someone who has a relationship with God. And as we take the elements, the bread is a representation of His body. Jesus said, you know, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Guys, we are not performing a religious ritual. We are looking back to the cross of Calvary. And as we look back to the cross of Calvary and we remember His body being broken for us, that He did indeed give Himself for us, may we search our own hearts before Him. Take some quiet time before the Lord and Lord, you know, Lord in me, is there any wicked way in me? Show me, Lord. I want to live holy and set apart to you. Is there something I need to confess? Is there something I need to make right before you, Lord? We also, not only do we look past and look within at our own lives, but we look forward because the next time we will have this with the Lord, we'll be in heaven with Him one day. And as we take the time to look at the bread, the body broken for us, and then the juice, the representation of His blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's His blood alone that redeems us. And as we take some time, maybe if you're here with your spouse, pray together, but let's take a little unhurried time and really just... Seek the Lord and really examine our own hearts before Him and not take lightly what we're about to observe. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your love and Your grace. We thank You that You came and suffered and died, that You sent Your Son to suffer and die, that we might have eternal life. Lord, may we not take it lightly, the cross of Calvary. May we not take it for granted. Lord, I pray that this would be a time of us examining our hearts before you, of remembering the greatest act of love in the history of all mankind. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace. We thank you and we praise you for your mercy. We thank you and praise you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, I pray that this needs to be a time of getting right with you, that we would not put up walls, we would come humble and broken, confessing openly to you the sins we've committed. You already know, Lord. You just want us to come and lay them at your feet. Lord, may we do that. And then, Father, I pray it would also be a time of great joy as we look in great anticipation for the time when we will have the feast with you, observe this supper with you in heaven one day. Lord, we love you and we praise you. You're a great and an awesome God. We're so blessed to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.